the claim that Jesus is the only Savior and that anyone who doesn't believe in Him will face God's eternal judgment sounds narrow-minded and arrogant to most people. But if Jesus is who He says He is, and if He has died, risen, and been raised to God's right hand as the Lord of all, then proclaiming the gospel is actually the most loving thing we can do. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more free resources at Radical.net, like our new free daily Advent reading guide called To Us a Son is Given. This year, Advent begins on Sunday, December 3rd. Each day of our Advent guide offers, in addition to a daily scripture reading, a key takeaway, brief reflection on the passage a simple summary of the reading. You can even read aloud for your family, as well as discussion questions, both for adults and young children, suggestion for prayer, and even suggested passages for further reading. We've also included a list of memory verses and practical ways for your family to respond to the good news of Christ's coming. The end goal of the Advent Guide is for you and your family to listen to Scripture and rejoice in the God who sent His only Son for the salvation of sinners like us. To download your free copy, just visit Radical.net forward slash Advent. That's Radical.net forward slash Advent. Well, this gospel of Jesus Christ was the reason for Paul's mission in Acts chapter 13. And as David Platt reminds us in today's sermon, it is the very message that should define our lives and the church's mission today. Here's David with a sermon titled, Proclaiming Jesus for the Joy of All People, from Acts chapter 13. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and while you're turning there, I want to welcome, in particular, those of you in Montgomery County and Loudoun and Prince William. It is good to be together around God's Word. We got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I want to jump right in. Last week, I, if you were here, I started by sharing a story from Bihar, India. And I mentioned that less than 1% of the people in Bihar are followers of Christ. So almost all of the people in Bihar are Hindu. And at one point, I just briefly stated that thousands of people are dying every day in Bihar. I said that means thousands of people are going to an eternal hell every day from Bihar. And I want to revisit that statement because that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Like to say that anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, goes to hell when they die forever. Doesn't that seem a bit bold, brash, maybe even arrogant? I mean, imagine traveling to Bihar. You go to Bihar, you find yourself standing in a sea of a hundred million people. Who are you to travel all the way over there to tell those people what they should believe? Who are you to say that all their gods are false? That Jesus is the only true God? 
Now, who are you to tell over 99 million people in that state that if they don't trust in Jesus as the one true God, they will spend eternity in hell? Doesn't that feel most uncomfortably bold, brash, even unloving, arrogant to say that? Here's the deal. I think it is totally unloving, completely arrogant to say that. Unless it's true. But if it's true, so if Jesus really is the only true God and everyone's eternity really is based on whether or not they believe in him, then that's not arrogant or unloving, it's actually the height of love and the depth of humility to go and say that. In fact, if it's true that Jesus alone is able to save people from their sins forever, then what's arrogant and unloving would actually be sitting over here silently while 99 million plus people in Bihar, India go to an eternal hell. That's arrogant. Unloving. Now, the reason why this is so significant to realize is because in the book of Acts, we're now walking with Paul on a missionary journey. He and Barnabas are going from city to city, place to place, and they're going through some hard places. The passage we're about to read tells about them going from Persia to Pisidian Antioch, which was not an easy trip. You look at it geographically, they were going through mountains, clinging to cliffs, crossing rivers. History tells us bandits were known for attacking people on these trails. This was not easy work these guys were doing. They were making all kinds of sacrifices for mission. We're about to read about them being persecuted, kicked out of an entire district. And here's the deal. None of this journey makes sense if the gospel isn't true. This journey journey only makes sense for these guys if Jesus alone is the true God who is alone able to save people from their sins. Now, here's why this is important for us in this gathering. Because this missionary journey is not just about them. It's about you and me. It's about our lives, our families. It's about this church. It's about McLean Bible Church. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Right where you're sitting, I just want to ask you, how willing are you in your life or your family to make sacrifices for the spread of the gospel in this city? How willing are you in your life or your family to make sacrifices for the spread of the gospel far from this city, around the world? And I know this is a time of transition in McLean, and I'm an interim teacher here, but if you would allow me, just, I want to ask the question, how willing is this church to make sacrifices in the days to come for the spread of the gospel in D.C. and far from D.C., even among some of the hardest, most dangerous-to-reach places in the world? And what I want to show you this morning is that if Jesus 
isn't the only true God who is able to save people from their sins, then it will make no sense for you to make sacrifices for mission in your life, your family, across this church. But if Jesus is the only true God and he alone is able to save people from their sins, then making sacrifices for mission in your life, your family, and across this church is the only thing that makes sense. Here's what I want to do. I want to read this story of Paul and Barnabas in Pisidian Antioch. And I'll go ahead and warn you, it's a long story, about 40 verses. But I want to read the whole thing. And then I want to show you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that I hope will then lead us to think about what that means for our lives our families, and the church. So let's start by reading the word, Acts chapter 13, verse 13. So just imagine this story. Let's walk through it together. This is God's word. Verse 13 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Persia and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So they've just invited Paul to preach. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, so we're about to read, just to let you know, what is the longest recorded sermon from Paul in the New Testament. And it's going to take us like two minutes to read it. But don't get the idea that uh, Paul just preached for two minutes. And don't start thinking, man, I wish you could learn from Paul. So, uh, so here's the deal. We, we, this is likely not every single word Paul says. This is a summary of Paul's sermon. So before you think Paul's this just kind of short preacher, two minutes in and out, like remember later on in Acts, he's preaching all night to the point where uh, a guy falls out of a window because he's bored to sleep and, he fa- and the guy falls over dead. Uh, so we're not going there, all right? So, so don't think Paul's just... And, and remember, in that story, what does Paul do? After Eutychus falls out of a window, dead, because he fell asleep in Paul's sermon, what does Paul do? He goes down, raises him back to life, and then what does Paul do? He keeps preaching. Like, you'd think the dude would get the hint. When people are falling asleep and dying in your sermon, it's time to cut it off for the night. But no. So anyway, just don't think Paul was like short preacher. All right. Just want to kind of get that out there before that enters into your mind. All right. So here we go. This is the sermon. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. 
And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So that's the sermon. Then the response. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told in the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. All right. So, so if you're taking notes, I, I want to show you what we just read two truths concerning who Jesus is, and then two truths concerning what Jesus did. So that's how we kind of start here. So first, who Jesus is, two truths. This text tells us, number one, that Jesus is the center of all history. He's the center of all history. I love how Paul starts in verse 16. And keep in mind, Paul's preaching here to a predominantly Jewish audience in a synagogue, which affects the way he preached. Just a side note, whenever we think about sharing the gospel with other people, think about it like it's bridge building. 
When you're sharing the gospel with someone else, you start with where they are, with what they believe, and you want to look to build bridges to the gospel, which means when you're sharing the gospel with different people, the way you share the gospel depends on who you're talking to. Like if I'm sharing the gospel with a Muslim friend who believes in God, then I'm going to start at a different place than I, than I do if I'm sharing the gospel with an atheist friend who doesn't believe in God. In the end, I'm going to share the same gospel, but I'm going to build bridges starting with where they are to that gospel. I'm going to start at a different place. So that's what Paul's doing here with Jewish worshipers in a way that's different than what he does, for example, in Acts chapter 17 when he's talking with a bunch of philosophers. So here, Paul starts by saying, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel. And Paul goes all the way back to the beginning. And he starts tracing history from Abraham and the founding of Israel to slavery in Egypt and delivery from Egypt to wandering in the wilderness and God giving his people the promised land, then giving them judges, and then a king, first King Saul, then King David. And this part of the sermon comes to a climax in verse 23 when Paul says, of this man's offspring, so of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. And then right after that, Paul talks about John the Baptist, who a lot of people were saying was the man, and John says, I am not the man. The only reason I'm on the earth is to point to the man, and Jesus is the man. So I, I love this. In a short amount of time here, Paul has just shown that everyone and everything in history has all been building toward one man, Jesus Christ. From the beginning, history has been pointing forward to him, and since he came, history has pointed back to him, which is a truth we all know, right? When we think about time, we live in the year 2017, 2017 years since the year of our Lord, and everything before that time, we label what? B.C., before Christ. So see it, ladies and gentlemen, from the beginning, everything in all history has been pointing forward to him. Since he came, everything in all history is pointing back to him. Jesus is at the center of it all, which means we are not at the center of history. You are not at the center of history. I'm not at the center of history. Our generation is not at the center of history. The United States of America is definitely not at the center of history. Throughout history, billions of people have come and billions of people have gone. Empires have come, empires have gone. Countries, nations, kings, queens, dictators, rulers, and presidents have come and gone. At the center of it all remains one man, Jesus Christ. He's the center of all history. And, so this is the second truth about who he is, he's the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. So Paul says in verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And then Paul starts using language that refers to prophecies, or promises made concerning Jesus. And he references these promises or prophecies throughout the rest of the sermon. You look down at verse 27. Paul says, people did not understand the utterances of the prophets concerning Jesus that are read every Sabbath. Prophecies that were actually, he uses the word fulfilled when people condemned Jesus. Verse 29 even says that when they crucified Jesus, they were carrying out all that was written of him. Verse 32, you look down there, it says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled in Jesus. Then he starts quoting from the Old Testament. First Psalm 2, then Isaiah 55, then Psalm 16, three Old Testament passages that pointed to Jesus. And those three are just a tiny sampling. Those three quotations represent over 300 
specific prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, hundreds of years before he came. Prophets were talking about the exact place of his birth, the family in which he would be born, the condition of his family at that time, the way he would be received by people around him, details regarding his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, which is pretty remarkable when you realize that crucifixion wasn't even a Jewish form of execution, was hardly even known to people in Old Testament times. This is awesome. Over the course of of centuries, God was using prophets to make promises about Jesus. So I ran a a 10K yesterday morning, which I did not train for, and my legs are paying for it today. It it reminded me of uh, one time I I did a, a, a sprint triathlon that I also did not train for. And let me just encourage you, uh, never, ever, ever, ever to do that. Um, so I thought, quick swim, ride on a bike, nice run, no problem. So I got in that water for that swim. Within a hundred yards, I really thought this was the end. Like, <laughs> like this is how my life's going. Like, I'm in this water around me. I got people kicking in my face and... Uh, they have people out in canoes uh, on the water to watch for safety. So I look up, I saw that first canoe, and I swam straight for it. Now, there's, they're not there to hold on to it, but I just went right, and I just grabbed onto it, and the person on the canoe's like, what are you doing? I said, can I rest for just a minute? Like, I... <laughs> and my entire time in the water... No lie, I went from canoe to canoe. Like, all I did was swim from canoe to canoe. I was exhausted, which means, okay, I was one of the last ones out of the water. Out of the water. Now I'm going to get on a bike. My whole body is hurting, and I got 13 miles to go up and down hills. And I get on that bike. Now, I'm, again, one of the last ones out of the water, so I'm one of the last ones. I'm, I'm at the back of the pack. I look over, here I am, this scrawny, out of shape guy, and then I see this woman next to me, he's a little stockier than I was, and I thought, I am not coming in this thing in last place. Uh, so we, we'd start, we started biking together, and I'd pass her when we'd go up a hill, but then we'd get to the top of that hill, and I'd start going down, and she'd come flying right past me. So 13 miles on a bike, then it was time to run a 5K. The only thing that got me through that race were those signs along the way saying, this many more miles to go, you can make it. People had signs that said, don't feel bad, you're going faster than the people behind you. (laughs) Which is encouraging if there are people behind you. (laughs) But if you're... The last one, it's not so encouraging. So, but people with their signs just cheering me on, telling me the finish line is coming. So that's the picture I've got. When I read about 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus, I think about all the ups and downs of history among sinful men and women. And God just given promise after promise after promise, saying a Savior is coming, a Savior is coming. From the very start, Genesis chapter 3 of sin in the world, God promised, I'm going to send a man born of woman to crush Satan's sin and death. And over the course of centuries, you had prophets saying, this is when he's coming. This is how he's going to come. This is what he's going to do. And all of that anticipation finally came to culmination in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Specifically, God's promise to save people from their sins, which leads to the question, well, how can Jesus save people from their sins? I'm glad you asked. So that leads to what Jesus did. So two truths about who Jesus is. He's the center of all history, the fulfillment of 
all God's promises. Then two truths about what he did. Number one, Jesus died on a cross as our Savior. He died on a cross as our Savior. Paul says in verse 23, Jesus is our Savior. Down in verses 27, 28, Paul talks about how Jesus died even though he was not guilty of any sin deserving death. So death from the very beginning of creation has been a result of sin. We die because we have sin. Jesus, though, had no sin. He did not have to die. So why did Jesus die? And that's where you and I come in. He died for our sin in our place. On the cross, Jesus took the payment of sin. Do you, do me, death upon himself as our substitute, as our Savior. Jesus died on the cross as our Savior. And then second truth, Jesus rose from the dead as our King. End of verse 29, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. Then verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And in the verses after this, Paul just pounds this theme home. End of verse 32, what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Verse 34, he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. Then down in verse 36, Paul compares Jesus to King David, saying, David served the purpose of God in his own generation. That's a great verse that we'll come back to at the end. But then Paul says, David fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, King David, as great as he was, he was buried and his body is decomposed, but not King Jesus. God raised Jesus up so he did not see corruption. Now, if we're not careful, we can read this, and it can all seem pretty elementary to us. Okay, Jesus rose from the dead. We can almost read this with a ho-hum sense of monotony. Yeah, yeah, okay, I know that. But think about that. Because there's nothing ho-hum about that. We're talking about a man who died. A violent death, the most violent death conceivable in that day. And then, after three days dead, he came to life. Resurrection. We're not talking resuscitation, reincarnation. We're not talking went to heaven for a few minutes, came back, wrote a best-selling book about it. We're talking dead for three days, then walking around alive. We're talking, imagine going to a man's funeral tomorrow. You see his body put in a grave, dirt poured on that grave. You walk away, and next weekend, that guy comes up to you on the street and says hello. That's unusual. It's crazy. It's crazy good. It's the greatest news in all the world. Death has been defeated. Jesus is not dead. He is alive, which sets Jesus apart from everyone else in human history. So what does that mean for every other person in human history? What does that mean for you and me? In the words of Lon Solomon, so what? So this is where I want to show you what this means. Verse 38, Paul says, therefore, so in light of this, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
Oh, here's what this means. Jesus is the center of all history. He's the fulfillment of God's promises. He died on a cross as our Savior. He rose from the dead as our King. And that means, so two more truths then. What does that mean? One, everyone who follows Jesus is forgiven and free. Everyone, everyone, anyone who believes in Jesus, that's the language in verse 39, is forgiven of all their sin. Just think about that. All your sin. Every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful desire, every sinful deed. Just, just imagine for a minute, if in this room, on these huge screens around me, like just imagine, what if God were to start scrolling through all your sins in front of everybody to see? You'd be horrified, wouldn't you? I would. But here's the glorious news. When you place your faith in Jesus, that entire slate of sin is wiped completely clean. Isn't that good news? This is awesome reality. Everyone who follows Jesus is forgiven of your sin and free from your every attempt to earn the favor of God. That's what Paul means when he talks about being free from everything from which you could not be free by the law of Moses. The law of Moses said, you've got to do this and this and this, obey this law, follow this command. And in this way, the law was like a chain because people couldn't obey it and it constantly condemned them. Do you, do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you just can't get it right? You keep going back to sin like you're chained to it. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on a cross and he rose from the dead so that you could be free, not just from the payment of sin, but from the power of sin in your life. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By him, everyone believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everyone who follows this man, Jesus, is forgiven and free. That's the first truth. But don't miss the second truth. What this means, everyone who follows Jesus is forgiven and free. But everyone who forsakes Jesus will be condemned forever. So Paul says in verse 40, beware. Don't let it be said of you what the prophets said. And he starts quoting from Habakkuk when God was declaring judgment on his people. When God said, you cannot even imagine the holy judgment you are about to experience for your sin. Paul is urging them to follow Jesus because if they forsake him, look at the language down in verse 46, they would judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. So this is the stark truth for every single person within the sound of my voice right now. Just come in here real close, like right where you are sitting, wherever you're sitting, not just the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. Like You have a choice. You can follow Jesus be forgiven of all your sin. You can be free from sin's power in your life. Or you can forsake Jesus and experience God's just condemnation for your sin 
forever. And I just want to urge you, I want to urge every man, woman, student within the sound of my voice, don't forsake Jesus. Follow Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. I know there are people, many people listening right now who have never placed your faith in Jesus. And I want to invite you, I want to urge you to follow him today. Today, like right now, today, right now, you can be forgiven of all your sin before God. Today, right now, you can be free from the power of sin in your life. You can be free to walk with God, to enjoy relationship with God. Jesus has made this possible for you today. Like right now, God, he loves you so much. He's brought you to this gathering to hear this news, to hear this warning and this invitation, this warning, don't forsake Jesus and this invitation, follow Jesus. Even right now in your heart to say yes to Jesus. To ask God to forgive. Say, I need to be forgiven of my sin. I put my faith in Jesus and be forgiven of your sin, freed from its power in your life. Don't forsake Jesus. Follow Jesus. And then when you do, so this all leads to how we live once we follow Jesus. So Paul's not just preaching an incredible sermon for us here. He's showing us how you live when you follow Jesus. So if this is true, if Jesus is the center of all history, the fulfillment of God's promises, if Jesus died on the cross as our Savior and rose from the dead as our King, then how do we live Here's how we live, two final truths. One, if this is true, then we sacrifice our lives proclaiming Jesus for the joy of all people. If this is true, we sacrifice our lives proclaiming Jesus for the joy of all people. This is why Paul is on mission. That's why Paul is in Pisidian Antioch in the first place, because he knows who Jesus is he knows what Jesus is, did, and he knows what this means. He knows that if people don't hear these truths about Jesus, they will be condemned forever. And he knows that if people do hear and believe these truths about Jesus, they'll be forgiven and free forever. So he sacrifices his life proclaiming Jesus for the joy of all people. And that language is really intentional. Look at what happens in response to the sermon. Verse 42, the people are begging to hear more. They're following Paul and Barnabas, hanging on their every word. They come back the next week. The whole city's there. The Jewish people, though, aren't happy because all these Gentiles, these non-Jews, are coming to hear about Jesus. And they're thinking, wait a minute. We thought Jesus was a Jew. Why are all these non-Jews coming? And the Jewish people in this passage miss it. They don't realize that Jesus hasn't just come for the joy of Jewish people. He's come for the joy of all people. That's exactly what's happening. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this about Jesus, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Yes, Jesus is bringing joy, not just to one type of people, but to every type of people, to all people. So this is how we live as the church. We sacrifice our lives proclaiming Jesus for the joy of all people. This is why we live on mission right here. 
and wherever God leads us in the world. Because we want all people to have joy in Jesus. We make sacrifices. Why? Because we want our family and friends to have joy in Jesus. We make sacrifices in our lives and our families here because we want our neighbors and our co-workers to have joy in Jesus. And not just here. We don't stop here. I spent time speaking at the Ethiopian Fellowship last week. We want Ethiopians to have joy in Jesus. We want Persian-speaking people all around this area and all around the world to have joy in Jesus. We want the nations in D.C. and the nations far from D.C. to have joy in Jesus. So we sacrifice our lives proclaiming Jesus for the joy of all people. And then, so final truth, we sacrifice our lives obeying Jesus with joy as his people. That's what I love about how this passage closes. You got Paul and Barnabas being persecuted. They're driven out of the district. But then what does the last verse say? The disciples, so Paul, Barnabas, and now new disciples of Pisidian Antioch, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, which makes sense, doesn't it? Like when you are forgiven of all your sin, when you're free to know and walk with God, when you have the message that brings eternal life to everyone who believes it, then there is no sacrifice too great. And there is no thing, there is nothing that can rob you of your joy. Nothing. So I'm, I'm using this word sacrifice. I asked that question at the start of our time. How willing are you to make sacrifices in your life, your family, this church for the spread of the gospel here and far from here among hard, difficult, even dangerous to reach places in the world? But even as I'm using that word sacrifice, I think about Liz and Morris who... We heard from last week, this couple sent out from McLean 40 years ago to spend their lives among a remote Indian tribe that had never heard the gospel. And there is no question that they have made sacrifices. One part of the, their story that we didn't even dive into was the fact that uh, at one point they lost a 15-year-old son on the field. But as I got to know Liz Morris last weekend, amidst the clear sacrifice I saw in their lives, do you know what else I saw? I saw joy. I saw a depth of pure joy that's only found in following Jesus, in obeying Jesus as you proclaim Jesus. And that's where I want to come back to that verse about King David, verse 36 in chapter 13. Remember what it said? It said, David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. Isn't that a great verse? Like, I want that to be the commentary on my life. When it's all said and done, he served the purpose of God in his generation. And then he fell asleep. And in that verse, in light of all we've seen this morning in this text, I just want to encourage you around this room. God has a purpose for your life. God has a purpose for your family. God has 
purpose for this church. This church is walking through transition. Somebody told me last night that yesterday, so April 1st, was the 56-year anniversary of McLean Bible Church. And praise God for 56 years of serving the purpose of God. So on this 56th anniversary, hear God saying in a fresh way through his word, he wants this church to serve his purpose for a new generation. To serve his purpose, to make whatever sacrifices are necessary, to proclaim Jesus for the joy of all people while obeying Jesus and experiencing his joy as his people. Is there anything more joyful than walking with Jesus and making his grace, greatness, glory known among other people for their joy? I've got to tell you this story as we close. So, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, some training we have done, uh, the missionaries training up national believers there, and these believers, had, a couple of them had gone up into one particular village there in Southeast Asia, uh, totally unreached by the gospel. They started sharing the gospel, Bible stories, having Bible studies, and slowly, people in the village started saying, maybe this is true. And the animistic people I believe in all kinds of gods and spirits and have, have, there were necklaces and amulets, have all kinds of idols in their homes that are intended to ward off evil spirits. So as they're studying the Bible and hearing the gospel, they start thinking, well, if this is true, then we don't need all these necklaces and amulets and idols in our homes. So they start taking them off, taking the idols from their homes, and they bring them to the middle of the village and start putting them in a pile basically for a bonfire to burn them. So it was exciting until one day, these believers went back up into the village and they saw the villagers going to this, this pile and started taking their necklaces and amulets back, putting them, idols back up in their homes, putting these things back on their necks and wrists. And the believers said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And they shared with them that the village leader had died. And many people believed that it was because people in the village were starting to believe what these guys were teaching. And so these believers got together and just started praying, obviously discouraged and just saying, God, we don't understand. They're coming so close. So why did this happen now? So they're praying, wrestling, what do we do? And they said, well, the least we could do is express condolences to the village leader's family. So the custom in that village, once somebody dies, is to keep the body in the house for a number of days, and then there's a burial ceremony days later. So they go up to the house. It's surrounded by people mourning. They walk into the house, and the wife of the village leader is standing there. They go over, express condolences to her. Then with just broken hearts, they walk over to where this man's body is lying there, and they just quietly pray that God would show his love and his mercy and his glory to the people in that village in the middle of all this. So the believer tells our missionary that as they're praying over this man's body, all of a sudden, the man coughed. And everybody in the house got still, and the guy coughed again. People came over, village leaders started breathing, people started helping him up. Everybody's looking at the Christians like, what happened? And they decided this was as good a time as any to share the gospel. So 
they share the gospel and massive change started to come about in that village. People ended up coming to Christ, did indeed burn their idols, amulets. So I, I, I hear that story. And I'm guessing there might be some who think, I mean, really? Like, was he really dead? Just kind of dead. <laughs> and obviously I wasn't there. I was there. I, I do know that in villages like this, they know how to recognize death. So this is not an unusual thing. They have processes they go through. But even if, so our missionary put it this way, even if he wasn't dead, God sure chose an opportune moment for that guy to cough. I think that's a great point. So there's a lot of things I don't know, but here's what I do know. We have the good news of a king who's conquered death, a king who has the power to say to the dead, come back to life. So brothers and sisters, it just makes sense then to sacrifice our lives and our families and the church on mission from where we live to the ends of the earth to make the good news of Jesus known. We're grateful that you've joined us today on Radical with David Platt. As always, you can find thousands of free gospel-equipping resources at Radical.net. And remember to download your free copy of To Us a Son is Given, our daily Advent reading guide, by visiting Radical.net forward slash Advent. It's Radical.net forward slash Advent. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us over at Radical.net.